Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. As the new year unfolds, make it a year of comfort and indulgence with Minky Couture. Wrap yourself in the lap of luxury with our exquisite blankets. Picture the cozy moments, the warmth of our premium materials, and the stylish designs that define Minky Couture. Welcome the new year with the ultimate in comfort and sophistication. January is your month to embrace luxury. Visit MinkyCouture.com or your nearest store today. Elevate your comfort, elevate your style with Minky Couture. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Today's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit therapynotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes today. Just use the promo code THERAPYCHAT when you sign up for a free trial at therapynotes.com. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I'm very excited to be bringing you a conversation with the authors of The Tough Standard, The Hard Truths About Masculinity and Violence. My guests today are Dr. Ron Levant and Shana Pryor. Ron and Shana, thank you so much for being my guests on Therapy Chat today. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Laura. You're so welcome. I know we have a lot to talk about, but let's start off by each of you taking a moment to just tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do, if you will. Shana, do you want to go first? So my name is Shana Pryor. I am currently a doctoral student I'm getting my PhD in counseling psych. I'm getting that from the University of Akron. Um, my main areas are men as victims of interpersonal violence, as well as compassion and compassion and self-compassion and shame. I mean, just a little bit of fun things about me. I have a black cat named Nix, and I'm also a gamer. Thank you. I'm, I'm at the other end of the spectrum. I'm a professor of psychology emeritus at the University of Akron, and I've been uh, a psychologist for over 45 years. And my area specialty is 
the psychology of men and masculinities. I um, People regard me as one of the key people who actually created this field within psychology. I was the co-chair of the committee that um, created a division within APA called the Society for the Psychological Study of Men and Masculinities. And I co-authored the first graduate textbook that um, called the, the New Psychology of Men that in print for over 20 years. And I've basically been doing research as well as finding new ways to provide psychological services to men for quite some time now. That's awesome. And as much as, Ron, you have been working and researching in the field of psychology of men for a long time, it still seems so little understood, at least in the mainstream, how, you know, it seems like counseling and therapy tend to be focused on, well, not focused on, but women tend to be the consumers of counseling and therapy so much more often than men. And men seem to have their own unique issues, in my experience, that, you know, are seldom addressed, at least out there in the world. So I'm really glad that we're talking today. Yeah, I am too. No, I, I think uh, that's part of the problem as we'll get into it is that they, you know, it's, it's really not men that is the problem, but it's masculinity. And people might be taken aback by making that distinction, but it's an important distinction to make. You know, men vary a great deal, but all men beginning as boys have been confronted with a demand that they conform to the norms of masculinity. Some people think of masculinity as synonymous with being a man, but we psychologists understand masculinity as a set of social norms. And we're all familiar with social norms. They're norms for how close we can stand next to a person or we're holding a door for someone who's coming after us. But then there are also gender norms. And these are norms that kind of specify the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that are expected of people of different genders, and even more importantly, the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that are prohibited for people of different genders. So masculinity, we'll probably get into defining it a little bit more, but it has uh, certain requirements that make it difficult for many men to reveal vulnerability, to put their emotions into words, and to engage in the kind of processes that uh, we all understand to be necessary in psychotherapy. Yes. Shana, do you have anything you want to add to that before I jump back in? Nope. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I I think that, um, you know, I often talk on this podcast about patriarchal structures and how they're limiting to people of any gender. Is that, do you feel like that's the same wheelhouse as what you're talking about with the, the social norms of gender roles and masculinity? To some extent, you know, masculinity is oppressive to certain groups. It is oppressive to women because one of the central masculinity norms is to avoid all things feminine, which essentially otherizes women. And masculinity really is a set of norms that are designed to keep men in the uh, power forward position and uh, to keep women in that power under position. But it also is oppressive to various groups of men who are not deemed to be kind of the premier type of man. Uh, in the United States, the, you know, the, the most honored way of being a man is to be a white, cisgendered, heterosexual, Christian man with blue eyes plays at least two sports. I'm kidding about that last part. And so therefore, it marginalizes men of color. And this is a topic I hope we get more into, uh, which is very important today as we're 
kind of going through this intense Black Lives Matter movement, but it, it also marginalizes men of different gender identities and sexual orientations than cisgendered heterosexual. Uh, but what does it do to the men themselves, the even the, the white Christian, you know, et cetera, men? Well, it impinges upon them. It doesn't oppress them. It gives them a great deal of status in our society, which I would describe as kind of a patriarchy that has been softened by 60 years of um, uh, second wave feminist activism, and political activity. But it impinges upon men largely in the way that I mentioned earlier on, that uh, it kind of confronts young boys with a demand that they conform to masculinity norms and, and, and makes these boys feel as if masculinity is obligatory. And, you know, this comes up in the family. This comes up also when uh, children go to uh, preschool and elementary school and peers police the gender norms fiercely and talk to any boy, okay, or any man who was a boy. Um, and I, as a man who was black, I can tell you, yes, that certainly happened in my childhood. And boys who deviated from conformity to the masculinity norms got teased or worse. You know, they often got beaten up. So, so that's kind of how I see how patriarchy affects different groups in our society. It oppresses women, men of color, and sexual and gender identity minority men, and it impinges on all men. Yeah, and, and I think I would, you know, I would definitely agree with that. And, you know, when we talk a little bit about patriarchy, you know, I, I want to say that it is absolutely oppressive to women. And, and it also puts men themselves back. As, you know, when we think about patriarchy and, and, and men's need to be the ones on top, you know, masculinity really inhibits their, their ability to kind of relate to other people and and form these relationships that can make them feel more fulfilled. And let me just jump in on that one. It's one of the ways that I have, my research has, has focused on the uh, masculinity norm to restrict the expression of vulnerable and attachment or caring emotions. And, you know, this kind of backing up, I, I got, I noticed this a long time ago, back in the 1980s, when I had started this uh, project at Boston University called the BU Fatherhood Project, which was um, a search and service activity in which we offered courses, non-credit courses, to men in the community. These weren't patients or clients. These were just men who kind of who were fathers and wanted to, you know, know more about parenting. And this occurred at a time like 83 is when we started the project, when the involved father was just coming on the scene. You know, in Harvard Square, you could see men with infants in snuggly packs, snuggly packs or pushing strollers. And people are just starting to pay attention to some changes in the father's role, that they were actually providing care to children as opposed to the former kind of distant good provider, chief disciplinarian role. And during this this project, which ran for five years, one of the early, we had a class, we had a bunch of different classes for fathers, for single fathers, stepfathers, fathers who, who worked and their wives worked. The, the central course was called the fatherhood course. And basically, it offered parent education to dads. And that was really needed because a couple of years earlier, I'd done a literature review on parent education or parent training and found that none of the uh, review articles that um, existed then even mentioned whether the parent group and included fathers. 
It was just assumed that this is for mothers. So it was nothing for fathers who at that time were just starting to, you know, take a more hands-on role uh, of being an involved parent. And during, so we, we would meet class of eight or 10 men, meet once a week for a couple hours and even for 10 weeks. And Back then, video equipment was very cool, and I, I had gotten a grant, and I bought an enormous amount of video equipment, which um, impressed the men uh, when they came in. They saw all this high-tech equipment, and it was how we did business back then. We would basically, we told the men, we're going to help you become a better father by same way you might have learned a sport like tennis or golf. We're going to do it. We're going to tape it. We're going to watch the tape and break it down and figure out how to do it better. So in this class, a man had come in, was kind of visibly upset. And I asked what was wrong. And he said uh, his son had stood him up for a father-son hockey game. So back then, I was pretty naive about men and emotion. So I asked him, well, how did you feel about that? Being a good psychologist, one of the first things you ask. <laughs> and he um, turned to me and with his finger pointed and a very vigorous gesture saying, he shouldn't have done it. So I said, okay, well, why don't we role play this? You play yourself, Tim and, and Don, you play as his ex-wife as she delivers the news to him that uh, his son had forgotten about it and gone on and done something else. We do the video, the role play, the video, we play it back. And I point out to him, I say, look, look in the monitor. You're Look at yourself in the monitors. His shoulders had fallen into a, a slump, his face was in a frown. I said, what were you feeling? So he, you know, with his hand on his chin, you know, thinking very hard, he said, uh, I guess I must have been disappointed. I thought to myself, I guess I must have been disappointed with all this coaching. Mm -hmm. What might a mother have said in an analogous situation like uh, her daughter standing her up, standing her up for a shopping date? Well, at first I was surprised because it's not like her to act that way. <laughs> I was hurt that she acted with so little regard for my feelings. And then I was worried that maybe she's upset with me and this is her way of showing it. And then I was disappointed and annoyed because I built my whole day around the date and now it was ruined. I guess I was disappointed, surprised, hurt, worried, disappointed, and annoyed. What's going on here? So my colleagues at the time were not very supportive. You know, they, they thought I was nuts. They said, you know, forget it, Ron. I mean, that's just the way men are. Mm -hmm. Now, in my doctoral program at Harvard, I had trained as a child clinical psychologist, did an internship at Guidance Center. And so part of my, uh, the educational performance, I, I became familiar with developmental psych, the developmental psych literature. And I was aware that there was a section in that literature called emotion socialization which studied how children were differentially socialized to express certain emotions based on their gender. And going into that literature, there are about 40 or 50 studies that I uh, reviewed at the time. I found out some very interesting things about men's emotion socialization or boys' emotional socialization. And again, this is under the masculinity norm of restrict the expression of vulnerable and caring emotions. So children are being socialized to conform to these norms. So what do we find when we look at this literature? There are a large number of studies of neonates hours after birth, okay? And what do neonates do? They sleep or they cry. And but um, observational studies of neonates indicated, and there, I think there were even 18 studies of neonates, that boys were more considered more emotionally expressive than girls at that stage, which meant that they probably cried more and changed more rapidly between emotional states. So boys start off more emotionally expressive than girls, which is really interesting, and they maintain this advantage until about one year of age. Um, then 
and, and at one year of age, obviously, they do a lot more than cry and sleep. You know, they gurgle and coo and, you know, uh, they express, they, they're, you know, there's, they express a, a wider range of emotions. When you start to see a study at two years of age, boys and girls showed that girls were starting to leap ahead. They were more verbally expressive of emotions than boys. And then between the ages of four and six, you find that boys become less facially expressive of emotions. And I kind of have to tell you about this study because I think it's one of the coolest studies I've ever come across. The investigator, Ross Buck of the University of Connecticut, recruited mothers uh, of four to six-year-old children. And uh, these are boys and girls. And child was shown an emotionally stimulating slide. And the mother was in an adjacent room watching her child's face on a monitor, video monitor. And the dependent variable in the study was, could she accurately identify the slide shown to her child? So the results were that at four years of age, boys, mothers of boys and mothers of girls were equally accurate. But as the children age, the mothers of sons grew less and less accurate so that by the age of six, the mothers of boys were you know, significantly less accurate than the mothers of girls. So what's going on with boys between the ages of four and six? You're going to preschool and school, mm. being socialized by their peers. You know, as I mentioned earlier, the, the peers serve as, you know, gender police. And so we Buck was able to document that during this time period where the major life experience of boys, you know, has suddenly changed, uh, that they are especially expressive of emotions. Now, based on these studies and also research I did in measuring masculinity norms, I put forward the normative male alexithymia hypothesis. Now, I know your listeners are probably not going to know what that word means. So I'll define it. Alexithymia is a clinical term that means literally without words for emotions. And my hypothesis was that boys who were socialized under the masculinity norm to restrict the expression of vulnerable and caring emotions grew up to be adult men who um, literally had trouble putting their emotions into words. They had a mild form of alexithymia, which could take one of several forms. Um, but maybe I should stop there and let you ask another question. <laughs> okay, sure. I'm, I'm totally interested in everything you're saying. And first, let me say, when you mentioned the study, Ross Buck's study, I know that oftentimes when people I interview mention studies, I get emails later saying, what, you know, what's the citation for that study? So I'd love if you could shoot that to me at some point and I could just include it with the show notes so people can look it up if you have it. Okay, let me make a note of that. <laughs> Thanks. And so everything you've been saying has been really interesting, but we're getting into talking about elixithymia and I really... I'm glad you brought that up. I know um, I want to go back to talking about the norms and even that definition of masculinity a little more deeply, but I I often, I mean, I have several comments. Um, one is as a therapist, I work with probably about a third, a third of my clients are men and two thirds women. And men will often tell me, you know, my wife says she wants me to be more sensitive but I actually don't think that she would like me if I didn't act tough, you know, for, for lack of, they don't necessarily say act tough, but you know, it's like, if I allow myself to be softer, she won't be attracted to that. And then I hear from women. And they base this on? <laughs> uh, well, I'm assuming it's the internalized beliefs about masculinity, but also women's 
you know, a lot of women do have a certain expectation of men to be a certain way. And that, you know, that's where I hear from my female clients. Oftentimes they say, you know, men don't really have feelings. Oh, my husband, he doesn't have feelings. He's, he doesn't, he just doesn't feel anything. That's how men are. And I'm like, no, that's not true. So I just think it's kind of interesting the way our society talks about what's normal for men and women and there's what we want and then what we expect. Well, you bring up a very interesting point, which is the complicity of everyone in maintaining these gender arrangements. And it is true. I have seen, you know, evidence that, um, that you know, some women, you know, kind of expect their men to conform to masculinity norms. And, you know, others do not. But I think as a society, these gender roles are so ingrained that it's hard to find a clear path to exist outside of them. Mm-hmm. How many people reinforce those norms for us? I can well understand, you know, the comments you made. Let me talk about a man in therapy who was Alexa Thyman. As I had, you know, I started working, you know, with this construct of normative male lexithymia around around 89. And I had left left faculty position at Rutgers and uh, essentially returned to Boston and uh, became a uh, part-time faculty member at Harvard Medical School at Cambridge Hospital. And and, uh, I had maintained a practice while I was down in New Jersey because I commuted back and forth and was home on the weekends and would see patients on Saturday. Um, And uh, so I expanded my practice into full time. And I told my uh, colleagues, particularly my female colleagues at Cambridge Hospital, that I was opening up full-time practice. And would they please send me the men that their woman clients complained about? <laughs> and I called my practice counseling for men. And it was filled with um, men who um, had a lot of relation relationship problems. And I would say that most of the men in my practice were sent. They didn't wake up one morning and say, you know, I've been thinking about this. I've got normative male lexithymia. I think I'll call Dr. Ron Levant, you know. No. (laughs) (laughs) They were told, you either, you know, you call this Dr. Levant or else. And some of them were sent by their wives or female partners, and some were sent by other members of the family, and some were sent by their supervisors or employers. Um, and uh, uh, so I had a practice of these men, and I was you know, really wanting to work clinically with alexithymia and see what could happen. I, I developed what ultimately became a manualized treatment called alexithymia reduction treatment, ART for short. But at the time, I was experimenting and doing different things. As it exists now, it, it's a, you know it's kind of a CBT-like uh, stepwise program. But let me tell you about this client. He uh, he was sent because his wife of 15 years was concerned that he, he didn't feel anything about the fact that they were that she was pregnant. They were going to have a baby. Now I'm sure among your listeners, anybody who's a parent knows that being a parent, becoming a parent is one of life's most dramatic experiences. It, it, it absolutely changes your life from the moment you are not a parent to the moment you are a parent. And it is, in my view, life's hardest job and for which people, adults, receive the least amount of preparation. So it was odd that he had no feelings. I mean, I can think of like excitement. I can think of fear, I, you know, all kinds of things that uh, should be happening. But he didn't think it was odd because normally he didn't really have any feelings. He didn't have any feelings. So I asked him when was the last time he actually cried? And he said it was 10 years ago when his dog got hit by a car and died. 10 years. Mm-hmm. 
The way I worked with this man is I started off by helping him develop a list of vocab vocabulary for emotions, you know, so that he could at least name emotions. And, you know, so that he had a range of words that he could use to describe and emotions that he felt or other people felt. And, you know, I met with him uh, over about four or five months, but we only met 12 times because of his travel schedule. So we began, you know, uh, working with the vocabulary. And then I uh, asked him to uh, start observing other people when he was talking to them. And I taught him a little bit about uh, nonverbal communication and nonverbal expression of emotions, facial expression, tone of voice, paralinguistics like sighs and cries and gas and I, body language. And I said, just observe people and ask yourself the question, what is she feeling when she's saying this? And then try to go through your vocabulary list that you've now developed and pick out the word or words that describe the emotion. So I'm teaching him to identify emotions in other people, which I found is a necessary uh, step to identifying emotions in oneself, especially for an alexithymic man. Back then, I would identify alexithymia through an interview. I subsequently developed a scale called the normative male lexithymia scale, which has gone through another revision recently. But once I've identified that they meet criteria for lexithymia, I could have also used the Toronto lexithymia scale 20. And then start, I explain what we're going to do, get buy-in for the method and start working. And I think and it, this particular approach has homework and it's kind of very results oriented. And I found it was pretty congruent with the way uh, that men like to work in therapy. You know, it wasn't kind of non-directive or free associate. It was kind of more action oriented. So the third step involves identifying emotions in yourself. And I asked my clients to keep, uh, you know, some three by five index cards handy. And whenever they thought they had an emotion, many of my clients wouldn't actually be able to know they actually had an emotion, but they would experience something, some change in their body, like uh, butterflies in my stomach or a tight band across my forehead. That's how they describe it. And I said, whenever you have this sensation in your body or a feeling, if you actually know it, that it is a feeling, write it down, you know, the time, what the feeling or sensation is, and then ask yourself the question, who is doing what to whom? And how does that affect me? And then once you've identified that, go through your vocabulary list and find a word or words that uh, ex you know express the emotion that you're feeling. So this particular client, when we did this exercise, uh, had um, used his emotional response log in, in response to kind of a, 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 semi, a mildly traumatic event at work where, you know, his uh, mechanic had not had his car ready. And so he missed a crop report. He was kind of a commodities trader, advisor, and, and, uh, and wasn't able to help his clients, you know, make whatever investment they were looking at. And so it was a major, from his point of view, a major bad day. And so we worked with the emotional response log. And of course, the first emotion that he came up with was he was angry at the mechanics. And I explained to him that uh, because we as boys learn to transform our vulnerable feelings like sadness or hurt into anger, that probably there were other emotions underneath there and to dig a little deeper. And so he did. And, you know, the emotions he came up with were that he was disappointed, felt let down by his mechanic. He felt a sense of failure, guilt that he had failed his clients. 
and fear that he would lose these clients. So, you know, working with him in this way, he's getting down to kind of the kinds of emotions we clinicians like to talk about. And, you know, I, I worked with him, as I said, uh, to help him develop an ability to identify and describe his emotions. We then started talking about his family of origin. And, you know, initially when he, when I, when I took the history, you know, he talked about his father in very kind of superficial terms, good man, hardworking man, you know, a, uh, a, uh, uh, an Air Force hero in World War II. His father was um, a bombardier. Do you know what that is? I think I know. It's the person who directs where the bombs are going to be dropped. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Most people don't know. So don't feel bad. But so the bombers, these uh, big you know, bombers, would have a little bubble beneath the tail. And in that bubble would sit a, sit a man with a machine gun. And that man would kind of shoot down the fighter jets that were trying to drop the bomber. So it's a very exposed position, like one second from death and, you know, and quite heroic in, in my estimation. And his father, you know, kind of many, many years after the war was still living in the war. He belonged to all these veterans organizations. He, you know, collected World War II memorabilia and the like. And he was, he, his vocation was they lived in a small town, small city, I think, in uh, the Midwest. And his father was the publisher of the that town's or city's local newspaper. So my client, wanting to connect with his dad, who he worshipped, became the editor of uh, his high school paper so that they could talk about the duties of the press and the freedom of the press and, you know, kind of, you know, kind of connect. He wanted to connect with his dad. But his dad wasn't having any of it. He was too busy and all of that. And so later on, you know, he's he's out of the house. He's finished college. He, he's in the army. Um, his father, he gets word his father had a heart attack. Um, could he come? Could he come home? And um, so his response was to say, F you. I don't have to do that. We men don't care. We don't have to do that. It was like this, you know, angry uh, response. Um, and that was really the first emotion that I had seen him express toward his father was anger. I did another exercise where I had him uh, write down uh, the questions that he would ask his father if he were alive today, explaining that, of course, he, he's not alive and he can't answer them. And he probably couldn't answer them when he was alive, visiting you know, his mother. And so he was at the gravesite and I had him take his cards with him and, and stand by the gravesite and read the cards. And that was a very tearful, uh, sorrowful experience for him. And so underneath all that anger that he experienced for his father was a lot of grief because essentially he was grieving for the relationship he wanted to have with his dad, but, but never could. Um, we continued to work a little bit after that, and then we terminated. And about a little while after we terminated, I got a postcard phone saying, it's a boy, all the stats, how, how, you know, six pounds, nine ounces, blah, 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 blah. And then he added, and he, I should say, one of my client's interests was uh, participating in Scottish rituals, you know, with the bagpipes and the kilts and all that. Mm -hmm. wrote at the bottom of the note, and he even looks Scottish. <laughs> That's kind of my story of how I at least helped one man reclaim his emotional life and what a difference it made in his life. Let's just pause for a moment so I can give you a little bit more information about why I love therapy notes. I switched to therapy notes a few years ago. I'd say it's about three years now, I believe. And I have never regretted it. 
I was very happy with the EHR I used before, but Therapy Notes is more intuitive. I love the interface. The customer service is fantastic. And I love how I can get my notes done quickly because I can customize the template that I use for my notes and there are opportunities to put check marks rather than having to write out the intervention used. So I have cut my time spent writing notes way down, which is wonderful because I like to focus on seeing clients. I know documentation is an important part of our work, but it can also be time consuming. And that is why I love using therapy notes. If you are considering switching EHRs or you're looking for one to use in your practice, give Therapy Notes a try. You can get two free months by using the code TherapyChat. Now let's get back to our interview. Yeah, so before I say anything, I just want to see if Shana wants to add anything to what's been said so far. Oh, well, um, you know, I, I actually had a response to your original question as well, but I think I'm actually going to probably respond to what Ron was saying is because I think I was thinking about the bombardier and this, the lack of emotions and what I think that means to some men and that, you know, when you're in these kinds of positions, I've had a lot of men, my own male clients, I think that, that say, Hey, if I, if I start showing emotions, what's going to happen? Like if I open up that door, what's going to happen to me? How am I going to be able to handle all of these, these, these situations when I have to be the caregiver or I have to be the provider? And I, you know, I think that relates a little bit, Laura, to what you were saying in the beginning, you know, where, well, if I'm not tough, then is she going to, you know, is my wife or significant other going to love me? And I, I think that speaks to the unknown that I think a lot of men feel when they, when they try to um, challenge some of these masculine norms. And really, you know, I want to say that, you know, we never really teach people that, you know, emotions are, you know, I think in, in a situation like the bombardier or, you know, if you're a firefighter or, you know, you're in the military, you know, in, in those it's, those situations, it's normal to kind of not have emotions because you have to survive. But the difference is that at some point you have to come out of that. You can't live there. And I think that that's where a lot of men tend to think, well, this worked for me in this environment, so it could work for me everywhere else. So I don't really have to feel emotions. In reality, they do. Yeah, I think one of the things is that not only do they feel them, but whether they try not to show them, anyone who tries to hold their feelings in, they're still there under the surface and they're affecting us, whether it's making it difficult for us to be close within our relationships or just this sense of something's missing or also things we avoid doing, you know, things we avoid dealing with because we just don't know what to do. All of that goes on below the surface, whether we're really aware of it or not. So we think we're like holding our emotions in successfully and just being an unemotional person. But there's a toll that it takes, I think, on the the individual who's suppressing their feelings. And it, that can be both, you know, emotional, as I just mentioned, but also physical. And then in addition, the way their relationships are. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I'm also thinking that, you know, as a woman, you know, because I also talked to, I was also thinking about your female clients that, you know, that, you know, it, I'm trying to remember exactly how you said it, that might have, you know, that might be attracted to men who are less sensitive. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, masculine norms and myths isn't just something men need to learn. I think it's something women need to learn as well. 
because I think I think one of the worst things that you can do, you know, as a partner to a man is to say man up and mm-hmm. you know, be a man. And, you know, I especially when they try to be sensitive. I've had a lot of people who, who attempt to be sensitive and it really gets thrown back at them and it just it just hit, sends them back three steps. You know, so I, I want to say this as a woman. I think women also need to kind of consider their role in this as well. One thing I wanted to kind of, uh, since, you know, we're kind of here because of the book, which is um, called The Tough Standard, The Hard Truths About Masculinity and Violence, I wanted to kind of draw attention to the relationship between alexithymia and violence. Um, you know, uh, and, and I'm going to kind of talk a little bit about depression. I think both of you are aware that that uh, men are diagnosed with major depressive disorder, which is considered the common cold of mental illness, not because of its lack of severity, but because of its frequency that men are diagnosed half as frequently as women with major depressive disorder. And that can't be biological. And a number of my colleagues have kind of developed um, conceptual formulations that try to explain this, um, that particularly, you know, men who are alexithymic and uh, really have difficulty even knowing what they're feeling tend to externalize their distress that is, they engage in that. That if something, if somebody says something that might hurt their feelings or uh, make them feel vulnerable, they get angry. And I've seen this with some men. It's it, it's almost like touching a match to magnesium. They just ignite in anger when someone hurts their feelings. And you know, I want to talk about this because our book is about violence, and violence is a huge problem in our society. I mean, right now we're looking at almost like an epidemic of police violence um, and masculine. Masculinity plays a huge role in that. There are about 45 years of studies that have shown correlations. That is that uh, uh, these two variables are are linked between masculinity measured by one of several uh, scales is associated with a whole host of harmful outcomes, many of which are related to violence. Now, I know of no study that has actually linked masculinity to violence because it would be unethical to create an experiment in which violence occurred. But there are many related to aggression as well as hostile attitudes towards ethnic and racial minorities, as well as hostile attitudes towards women, misogyny, uh, rape myth acceptance, and a variety of pretty negative things. So, you know, I think it's important to bring this up, that masculinity doesn't only harm the man, it harms people close to him, and it harms society. And I should say that, you know, it's well known that most violent crimes, one reports that 87%, FBI report, 87% of all violent crimes are committed by boys and men. But it's also true that the vast majority of boys and men are not violent. And the difference is in the masculinity. And what I mean by that is most adult men actually do not strongly endorse or conform to masculine norms. I think what happens is that masculinity is a tough standard. And many adult men say, you know, I, I'm just I'm just not the most masculine guy in the world. And that's okay. I'm, I am who I am. A minority of men still feel ashamed of themselves for not meeting masculine norms. And these, these are men who are, I think, prone to violence. 
studies have been done that show that when you threaten the masculinity of some men and then given an opportunity to aggress in some way, um, and you actually have an experiment where some men are have their masculinity threatened and others not, the men who have their masculinity threatened become aggressive. But there's also, you know, if you look at a distribution of scores on a masculinity scale, as I said, most, most men don't endorse those norms, but there's a tail at the upper end of the men who I call who check all the boxes who are highly masculine. And I would say that those men are also in the group of men who are likely to commit violence. When it comes to actually predicting violence, the best that psychology can offer is that the best predictor is a history of violence, which seems to me like begging the question. And various personality traits and social situational things have been looked at. Social situational things tend to account for more variance in personality traits. And we really don't know with any accuracy of who is going to be violent. But I do want your listeners to know that masculinity plays a role in the two ways I've mentioned. Men who feel ashamed of themselves for not living up to masculinity norms and men who hyper who are hyper masculine and check all the boxes. Mm. I'm curious to learn more about that. I've learned as someone who's worked with sexual violence, with survivors of sexual violence for 18 years, the prevention kind of framework that I've learned within is that hyper masculinity is a common factor in sexual violence, not across the board, but how does that fit with what you're talking about? And does it, is there a difference in that hypermasculinity versus not being strongly endorsing those masculine traits, but feeling ashamed about it? You know, when you're feeling shame or guilt, you know, that's kind of more turned inward. But when you, when you overconform to masculinity, you know, one of the biggest ones that I, well, I think it's the biggest one. I don't know what Ron, about Ron, but I think the biggest thing about masculinity is the avoidance of all things feminine and or the or power over women, depending on which scale you're using. And I think when people hyper conform to that to masculinity, you know, you've got hyper high levels of aggression, high levels of avoidance of femininity and dominance over women. And and that just paves the way for violence. There's also a deeper level that we get to. And this we have this in the book as well. But the avoid femininity norm plays a role in the fact that boys don't play with girls in elementary school. Uh, you know, the girls have cooties, of course, so then probably boys have cooties too. But boys have been shown through numerous studies that boys and girls play in gender-segregated groups and they play differently. But what happens um, to boys because they do not play with girls? They Most boys never get to know girls as persons, you know, the way they get to know boys. They get then they understand that this guy is kind of uh, tough and this guy is very sensitive and they they understand differences among their boyfriends but they've avoided learning about girls as persons so when they get to middle school and puberty hits they're suddenly starting to think about girls in a sexual way and they've skipped this entire stage of of understanding and and knowing girls personalities so I think what that does it creates a pathway for men's objectification of women, their sexual objectification of women, which is, is a huge problem. I mean, you know, that, that uh, many men, 
regardless of how strongly they endorse norms, tend to view women as sexual objects, objectify them. And while I don't know of any study linking objectification to rape, it just makes sense that if you've kind of stripped a person of their humanness and only see them as a uh, party to a sex act, that you're more likely to take on that added step of uh, either sexual coercion or rape. So, but I think that's an important point that needs to be made about kind of a, a, a really uh, a not well understood result of uh, masculinity norms, and namely that boys don't have this history of knowing girls as persons, most boys. Now, some do. They might have sisters or cousins, and also that might even make things worse, depending on the family. But I think you get my point, that um, it creates a real gap in the way that boys think about girls. I would think that that's, I would say that that's absolutely true. Yeah, I think, you know, we don't, the genders don't really bond in the same way, and that, that does pave the way for objectification of women and men feeling entitled to two women. Yeah, I'm thinking too about how so many times groups of men, you know, for example, how it's common for women to be raped within the context of fraternity parties, sports team parties, and I'm thinking like college for example, but not only college, um, and also how men are likely to be experience sexual violence as members of fraternities, sports teams, and other groups of that are, you know, gender separate. So I'm just, my wheels are turning about all this. <laughs> well, Shana, you want to say something about men who are victims of sexual violence? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Well, you know, men, men, men as victims of sexual violence, we never talk about, you know, and, and it, it is really sad. And I think the way we talk about sexual violence, we talk about it in a very scripted way. Women are the victims and men are the perpetrators. And, and in reality, you know, if we're not talking about the tail end of the spectrum. So I know, you know, Ron was talking a little bit about like the people at the high end of the MRNI, the high end of masculinity. You know, but when we're in the middle, we're in the average where men tend to kind of be average on masculine norms. They don't tend to be really high. You know, they're vulnerable to, they're, they're all, they're vulnerable. Um, you know, I mean, I think... I think it depends on the like when and, and how the sexual violence happened. A lot of it happens when they're boys, um, but it also can happen with significant others and girlfriends. And, and, you know, if you don't want to penetrate someone and someone's asking you to penetrate them, but you don't want to, but you're doing it anyways, that's coercion. That's still, that's, you know, it doesn't have the same script as like, oh, someone held someone down, right. but it's still, it's still wrong. Yeah, I definitely see where men, young men who've had, or even teen teen boys who've had unwanted sexual experiences, maybe something happened during a wanted sexual experience that they didn't like, and they didn't, they don't have any frame of reference of how to even understand that. You know, it's like men don't get in our culture, men don't get to not want to have sex. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. It's supposed to be a great job, man. You know, even, and I keep seeing articles about these like female teachers that have sex with students. And mm -hmm. the, the, the idea is just the guys think it's hilarious. And some women thinks it's, think it's hilarious to make these comments like good job, buddy. And, and you know, when you think like, you know, let's reverse that a little bit, let's reverse the genders. And how would you feel then? And that's really the sexism. That's really the, the prejudice about it, right? This idea that I think it's sexist to think that women can't be perpetrators of violence. 
I don't think it's just not accurate. And to be honest, like I could go out and perpetrate violence just as much as any other man could. And I think that a lot of for things that happen to these boys and, and men and they feel shame and they, they really have no one to go to about it because a lot of therapists or, you know, the community organizations set up for um, rape prevention aren't quite as knowledgeable about male survivors. Um, and so they're, they're going to get a lot of speculation and, and they're probably less support. Yeah, I mean, I would, you know, just to, I don't want to discourage anyone who's listening, who's male and thinking about seeking support for (laughs) sexual violence. Like, I know there are many places that do have that expertise, but if you went to a place and it felt like they didn't get it, they didn't take you seriously, keep trying because that's, you deserve to be heard and, you know, but I agree. I mean, that's not our dominant narrative about sexual violence. It's like, you know, men commit sexual violence on women is the dominant narrative. And so, again, boys, young boys, teens, and adult men who experience non-consensual sexual interactions um, don't don't even know to call it sexual Mm -hmm. assault or rape. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I had a client who uh, had had that experience as a teenager, and he didn't consider it a bad thing at all. He could, he thought he was lucky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it reminds me um, of, you know, Chris Brown, the musician who was in a relationship with Rihanna and um, assaulted her. And, you know, that was all very, very public. And a few years later, I saw that he had was quoted in an article saying that I think I know I just remember he said the first time he had sex, he was a young child. I feel like it was like younger than 10 Mm -hmm. from what I recall. And he was talking about it in the article as if it was a positive thing. And, you know, that this is like, you know, what a man I am. But, you know, objectively, when someone is having sex with a child under 10 that is not they can't consent Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you know it's just what else would he think like what what else is the narrative people don't want to be seen they don't want to see themselves as victims no of course not because that's vulnerable that's vulnerable and and it doesn't fit with the masculine narrative and that's wrong that that's the case that you can't be a survivor of sexual violence and also a man right Well, this is a fascinating conversation. I know we don't have much time left, but I just wanted to see if you, if you have the time, if you could just go through what those norms are of masculinity that you mentioned before. You've talked about a couple of them, but I know you, you had a whole list. Sure. So the ones I mentioned were avoidance of all things feminine, restrict the expression of vulnerable and caring emotions. And we've talked about those, so I don't think they need any elaboration. And then there are three that are kind of self-explanatory, uh, self-reliance, toughness, and dominance. Then uh, the given kind of what we were just talking about, the, the next one is um, a high interest in sex. Um, and another scale, uh, it's called the playboy norm, but it's, you know, the idea that a man should always be ready for sex. And the final one is um, uh, disdain for sexual minority and gender identity minority men. So those are the seven norms of masculinity as defined by my scale, which is the male role norms inventory. There are other scales that define it a little bit differently, but generally there's a lot of uh, coherence uh, to this. Thank you very much for that. And 
I guess the last thing I would want to ask you is if someone is listening to this and they want to understand more about masculinity and violence, what, I don't know how quickly you can answer this, but what do you think they will take away from your book? Is it, is it like a compilation of research or is it more for a general population or what? It's for kind of the educated non-psychologist. And it's, you know, the kind of book that, you know, if you want to kind of understand the psychology of masculinity without having to learn heavy-duty statistics, this is your book. So, we, you know, we really uh, lay out what we know um, and what we don't know, you know, about the relationship, about what masculinity is and how we understand it and its relationship to uh, physical and sexual violence and also to the violence that uh, men do to themselves through their poorer health habits which is a big issue right now with men dying at a greater rate than women due to COVID-19. If readers, I mean, sorry, listeners would like more information, we have a website for the book where they could, you know, explore the book a little bit more. And it's called the tough standard, one word, dot com. And, you know, they could read a little bit about the book. There's an excerpt, there's table contents, there are reviews of the book, and also ways to order the book. Wonderful. And would you think that your book would be a good resource for men who want to understand more about, you know, why they feel the way they do? And Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it does. It, it's not a mass market book. I mean, it does assume kind of a college education, but not, not more than that. And like I say, you don't have to be a psychologist to read it and understand the book. We wrote it for, you know, a, a person who's not a psychologist. So I think, yes, I, I, I think indeed that if there's a man who really wants to understand more about kind of how masculinity impinges upon his life and and, think, and also we have solutions. We, we talk about solutions in the final chapter, ways out of, you know, the prison that masculinity has created for a large number of men. So yes, indeed, I would recommend it to um, um, any of your listeners who are men who want to understand themselves better, to any of your listeners who are not men and want to understand men a little bit better. I think we wrote we wrote this book for you. Wonderful. Shana, did you want to add anything there? I think that, you know, I think the, the one of the really important things, I think, is for men to be willing to, to seek therapy if they need it. And, and to know that you don't have to have a massive problem to see a therapist. I think, I think therapy can be really helpful in uncovering a lot of things about yourself that you're trying to, you're struggling with, you know, and I would also say like, you know, be, be open to being vulnerable with the people that you trust. Yeah, I would amplify that last point. I mean, one message that I would give to um, the men who are listening to this um, podcast is to open up your heart to those close to you, your family, your friends, you know, take a risk and let them know kind of what things are bothering you. You'll be amazed at the results. You'll be amazed at, at kind of how this would enrich your relationships with friends and with family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, Ron and Shane, I just really want to thank you again for being my guests on Therapy Chat today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Today's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes. There are many ways to keep your practice organized, but Therapy Notes is the best. Their easy-to-use, secure platform lets you not only do your billing, scheduling, and progress notes, but also create a client portal to share documents and request signatures. 
Plus, they offer amazing unlimited phone support. So when you have a question, you can get help fast. To get started with the practice management software trusted by over 60,000 professionals, go to therapynotes.com and start a free trial today. If you enter promo code THERAPYCHAT, they will give you two months to try it out for free. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now, for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today.